Recently, my family went out to dinner with some friends, and it was just a simple, casual evening out. Nothing fancy. No need to to dress up. A simple t-shirt and a Bass Pro Shop hat, not unlike the one that I'm wearing right now, was perfect attire. My son knew this. He wanted to go, so uh, when it was time to leave, we told him to go to his room and put his shoes on. He quickly sprinted off to his room and returned a short time later with his Bass Pro Shop hat on, not unlike this one, like his dad. Uh, Turned around backwards, which if I weren't recording this podcast, this hat would probably be turned around backward as well. Bass Pro Shop hat turned around backward, t-shirt and a pair of slides and socks. The quintessential dorky dad outfit. That's what my boy was wearing. Why? Because he had seen dad do that. He wanted to emulate dad. He wanted to be like dad. I think that's cool because he's my boy. He was so proud. (laughs) And he quickly let me know that I had to go get my socks and slides and and wear those as well. So I did. And we, we went out dressed the same way. My son wanted to be like me. I had set the standard, and he was following the standard. He had seen me go out many times, much to the chagrin of some, <laughs> but go out many times wearing this outfit. I had set the standard. He was following. But how does that relate to this conversation here today? I think it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. God sets the standard of holiness in our lives, and we follow the standard. Real simple. But what is the standard? What what is it? What is God's standard of holiness? Let's talk about it today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My name's Don Van Zandt, and this is the Lost Mission Podcast, where our goal is to help us as believers get back to our mission of knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you've stopped by once again to listen or watch or however that it is that, that you found this show. I appreciate you taking the time. But before I get into the content today, I want to give a quick shout out to another show, Pentacast. Uh, the guys over at Pentecast sent me this mug uh, uh, not long ago, and I, I, guys, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So if you're looking for another show that is kind of out of that Pentecostal or holiness vein, look up Pentecast. Andrew and those guys on his show do a great job. So if you're looking for another show, check them out. Shout out to Pentecast. All right, holiness. Let's talk about holiness. What is God's standard of holiness? Now, this is part two in our series on holiness. We're calling this Pursuing Holiness, and it's taken from Jerry Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Now, we covered chapter one in our first video. If you've not seen that, go back and check it out first. Today, we're going over chapter two, and we're going to talk about the holiness of God. But our scripture text comes from the book of 1 Peter chapter one, verses 15 and 16, but... As he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you should be holy, for I'm holy. That's what God is saying through Peter in the book of 1 Peter. And this is a call back to the Levitical law. Um, it's a call to separation given to the Levitical priesthood, to distinction, to difference. Uh, it's actually lifted from um, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where God is commanding the priesthood uh, to abstain from certain types of meat, certain types of things. It's a call to separation. It's a call to, as God is holy, the priests were to be holy. As God was separate and distinct and different from other things, Likewise, the priests were. And, and, and Peter, when he's writing to these Jews of the dispersion in First Peter, he's telling them the same thing as the priests were told, that they too should be holy as God is holy. Uh, God says, or I'm sorry, God, not God. <laughs> not God, John MacArthur. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, this is not a good way to start this episode out. <laughs> John MacArthur says this, uh, says that God is teaching his people to live authentically. Oh, my goodness. Oh, John MacArthur says that God is teaching his people to live authentically. Using these distinctions of clean and unclean to separate Israel from the idolatrous nations around them. And obviously, we know that we live in a different day and age. We live in a different context. We live in a different time. Things are different now than they were both in the days of Peter and in the days of the Levitical priesthood. Um, uh, we live in a different context in this age. Peter would even recognize as much in his vision in the book of Acts uh, when God tells him that what God has cleansed, um, he's not to call common or unclean. All right, and that makes this passage to me all the more fascinating that Peter would actually go back to the law and write about the law to the Jews with this knowledge that God has cleansed many things and made them unclean um, with, with, with his knowledge of fulfillment of the law, Peter still calls back to the law, calls back to this passage when he refers to holiness. It's a call to holiness. It really is. And really... In the life of any believer, there is still this very same general call to holiness. God calls people to be holy. Matter of fact, I had a conversation with somebody two days ago about holiness, and I told them that no believer is a real true believer if there's if they're not pursuing holiness. This person had actually asked me, hey, do you still identify as holiness? I said, well, of course I do. Every Christian does. <laughs> Every Christian should identify as holiness. They better identify as holiness. We don't do away with holiness. We accept and we pursue holiness. That's the reason for this series is to pursue holiness. If anybody tells you they hate holiness, then they're essentially saying that they hate God, that they don't love God. <laughs> but why is there a call to holiness? If God truly has made all things clean, why is there a call to holiness at all? If in the vision, Peter sees all things as being made clean in the book of Acts, why does he have this call to holiness later? Uh, why does it even matter at all? Jerry Bridges says this in, in the book, In Pursuit, The Pursuit of Holiness. This call to a holy life is based on the fact that God himself is holy. Uh, because God is holy, because God is holy, he requires that we be holy. God is holy, we must be holy. That's the requirement, the standard. So the standard of holiness then must both begin 
and end with God. All right? Holiness must be God-focused and God-centric. It must begin with God. It must end with God because he is holy. To put anything else in view at any time is essentially to leave holiness. In many ways, uh, the holiness of God, uh, it remains mysterious. It is. The, the holiness of God is a mysterious thing to us, and I think it should be. Uh, we should view God as being holy, and somehow that we can't quite understand God. I think if we could understand God, then he would no longer uh, be God. Let me tell you a little bit about what I'm trying to, to say there. R.C. Sproul talks about holiness in his book, um, The Holiness of God, and he says our attitude toward the holy is close to our attitude toward things like ghost stories and horror movies. You may say, oh, those are total opposite ends of the spectrum, and I would give you that, sure. They, they, they may not be exactly the same thing, but the fascination, the attitude toward that is the same. So the thing isn't the same, but the attitude toward it is the same. There is a certain fascination we have with things that frighten us. Is that fair? I think that it is. I, I'm fascinated by things that, that frighten me. Um, matter of fact, growing up, one of my favorite things to do was to go to uh, my, my grandma's house, my big mama. We called her big mama. <laughs> I would go to my big mama's house, and she would tell these, these scary, scary stories. And they would just absolutely terrify my, my child mind. And I grew up with that fascination. Now I have a daughter who has the same fascination. She loves a good, spooky, scary story. We love these things. They, they fascinate us because we don't really understand them. There's a certain fascination we have with things that frighten us until they frighten us. <laughs> and then we're scared. So I think in much the same way, we want God's holiness. We say that we do, and I say that I do. And I really feel as though I'm being honest when I say that I want the holiness of God until God starts to convict me on an issue. And then I start to shrink back. I start to pull away from, from holiness, and I think, whoa, I don't know if this is really what I wanted um, in the first place, because we're fascinated with it until it really starts to interact with our lives. So why is there a, a call to holiness? Because in order for God to be God, he must be holy. And we are dealing with a mysterious thing, a thing that we cannot, in our finite minds, fully grasp, fully understand. Yet it remains, and it exists. There, there is this element when we think about holiness that, that exists that I feel is necessary um, to address for anybody that's concerned about these things, specifically those that have came out of or may even still be involved with um, any type of a holiness movement. So I'm referring to anyone that is a part of the holiness movement or the conservative holiness movement or the apostolics or the UPCI or the independent fundamental Baptists or any other number of groups that exist out there. There's this sort of danger that, that, that we can find ourselves confronted with. And that's this idea of having um, what Jerry Bridges refers to as a cultural holiness. And we want to be aware of that. We at least want to be aware of it, that it does exist. There is a cultural holiness that we have to contend with. Here's what Bridges has to say in chapter two of the book. Many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and behavior pattern of Christians around them. As the Christian culture around them is more or less holy, so these Christians are more or less holy. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity 
to the character of God. Not culture, but God. So, so let's, let's, draw, let's draw two conclusions from this statement. Number one, number one, God's holiness is not grounded in men. No matter how good a man may be, he is not the standard of holiness. All right? No matter how good a man may be in your mind, or how good you believe he is, he, that man is not the standard of holiness. Your grandpa is not the standard of holiness. The old-time way is not the standard of holiness. I grew up hearing this my, my whole life. I, I've heard it over and again that we need the old-time way. There's an old church hymn that we used to sing at, 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 at almost every camp meeting that, that the brass band would play. Somebody would get up with their saxophone and play, I've got the old-time religion in my heart, and thank God that that, that, sh- that should definitely be the truth. We should want the old-time way. However, it's never explained what the old-time way is. I mean, what even is the old-time way? So let me put this out there as a challenge. If, if you're listening to this or watching this, and you've, you, you've heard that or said that or even believe that, explain to me what you mean by the old-time way. What is it? What is the old-time way? Here's the deal. It can't be your grandpa's religion. It can't be the way they lived back in the 40s or the 50s or 100 years ago. It literally cannot be that because every scripture, every passage that deals with going to the old paths and seeing and asking for the old way, uh, where is the good way and walking therein, well, that scripture existed while those guys were alive and they were calling back to that. Um, any, any passage that, that talks about returning to, to old paths, it existed during that day and age and time. So it literally cannot be any time from about 100 years ago. Scripture was already a closed canon by that time. It was already out there. So these guys were calling to the very thing that we call back to now as Grandpa's Day, as the old time way. Give me that old time religion. Great. But what is it? So it's not grounded in men. Number one, God's holiness is not grounded in men. Number two, God's holiness is not reflected in systems. So a second issue that, that I see um, is comparing world systems with biblical law uh, to, to, to push a standard, to make a point, to drive that home. And the argument goes a little something like this. I want to just hit this and, and move on. I've heard this a lot of the time, and I feel like that there's a real problem with it that I want to speak on. All right, so here's how the argument goes. Something similar to, well, the military requires a uniform, so we require a dress standard. Or the employees of a certain place, McDonald's, Walmart, the local garage and mechanic, uh, they require a certain uniform, so we require a dress standard around here. All right, so here's the deal. Aside from the huge lack of, of biblical backing with this perspective, there are some other issues. That, that's one. There's no Bible to back up. Well, the military does it, so we have to do it too. That's not in the Bible. <clears throat> But it builds on a logical fallacy called a false equivalence. You say, well, what's a false equivalence? Thank you for asking. I'm going to tell you. So taken from the website, logicallyfallacious.com, they define a uh, false equivalence as this. An argument or claim in which two completely opposing uh, arguments appear to be logically equivalent when in fact they're not. The confusion is often due to one shared characteristic between two or more items of comparison in the argument 
that is way off in the order of magnitude, uh, oversimplified, or just that important additional factors have been ignored. So it's a logical fallacy to say military has has a uniform, so we do too. We have a dress standard because uh, the military has a uniform. Um, it's essentially doing this, comparing apples to oranges. They're not the same thing. So the military and the way that they dress cannot be used, as a good argument anyway, um, to push a holiness standard because what it's doing is creating this false equivalence. It's saying these two are the same things when really it's, it's possibly an oversimplification, which many times it is. A lot of other factors um, go into that. Um, or just in the magnitude, the reason why the military does it is not the same reason why that the church pushes a holiness standard. They're just not the same thing. And we were creating um, a logical fallacy there. We're creating this argument that doesn't really exist in reality. And we're just using it to make a point. And really, it, it doesn't work. It illustrates, but it doesn't work. And the ignored factors in this case, like I said, are God and the Bible. They're just not the, not the same thing. So what is wrong with the cultural holiness? Number one, because God's holiness is not grounded um, in men. And also God's holiness is not reflected in system. God's holiness far outweighs both of these. A cultural holiness fails because it's no holiness at all. It's not God's holiness. And we want to seek after the holiness of God and cultural systems of holiness fail in that area. They just, they just, they just don't do it. It just doesn't really work. It tries real hard, but it just doesn't work. Holiness is an attribute of God. We need to remember that. It is one of God's attributes. It's one of the, the things that makes God God. It's, it's the godness of God. Now, there are many key qualities and features that we can discuss when we talk about God. These qualities and features are referred to as his attributes. God has certain attributes. It's essential for God to have these attributes in order for God to exist. If he didn't have this, he wouldn't be God. Uh, a few of those are God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God literally knows everything. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. Um, he's omnibenevolent. He is all good. Right? So God, God is all good. But furthermore, God is faithful. God is love. Like God doesn't love. God is love. God is merciful. God is immutable. And God is holy. That is one of his attributes. That is one of the things that defines God as God. God is holy. So holiness is a part of the godness of God. It's essential to his existence. If God were not holy, he wouldn't be God. Just as God cannot but know what is right, he cannot but do what is right. Many times you and I agonize over decisions of right and wrong, and we just don't know. Uh, we do not always clearly see the answers, but God never does this. That's not, that's not who he is. He never vacillates. He never goes back and forth in his thinking or his actions. He never just wonders what's, what is his next move going to be. He's never curious. God always knows, and God always does. And God always does because God always knows. And God always knows because God always does. They're, they're hand in hand. They go together. This is part of the godness of God. So he is holy. And he does what is right without the slightest 
hesitation. And it's impossible for him to do otherwise. He never has to sit and think about, what's my next move? What am I going to do next? He, he knows instantly, all the time. Yeah, and, and we might ask questions, what about times in the Bible when God seemingly um, changed his mind on an issue, when he, when he flipped on something? And most of the time in the Old Testament is where we go to. We think of things like the flood, um, or, or, or in, uh, I, believe it's, I believe it's 1 Samuel, Saul. Um, let's just read a few um, scriptures here. Let's read one scripture, we'll read in a few different versions. And deal with, with God changing his mind, or not. <laughs> Genesis 6.6, 6, And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Or like the New King James says, the Lord was sorry. Uh, or the NASB, the Lord was sorry, uh, or the King James, and it repented the Lord. The Lord repented. Uh, or the NIV, the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth. All right, so Genesis 6, right before the flood, uh, God is sorry. God, God is repentant that he's done these things. Uh, he regrets that he's done these things. So do these verses somehow indicate that God changed his mind on the issue of creating humanity, that God was like, oh, I messed this up. Now I need to fix it. No. Not to be necessarily circular, but maybe somewhat. Um, no, because for God to do that, to change his mind on anything, would cause him to, saw, to cease to become God, because he would have learned. And there would have been something out there more powerful than him in the area of knowledge or of wisdom. Rather, it is an indicator of the sorrow God felt over the sin of man. So when it says the Lord regretted, God was looking at this thing, and he's like, I regret that this is so terrible. Um, or when it says that he repented, it, it, it repented his heart that, that, it was, that man was so wicked. Not that God had created man in the first place, but that man was so evil. God knew the whole time when he created man that this would happen. He wasn't shocked or surprised. He didn't change his mind on it. But in the moment when it actually occurred, he looked down and saw it happening, and it grieved his heart. He was sorry that these things were going on. So rather, it is an indicator of the sorrow that God felt over the sin of man, which really is a further indicator of his holiness, of the godness of God when he sees man acting like man. So holiness is an attribute of God. But God's holiness is perfect freedom from all evil. 100% freedom from all evil evil. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. None. Light and darkness, uh, when used in this context, they really carry the sense of moral significance with them. It's not just speaking about actual light or actual physical light or darkness. No, it has this moral connotation that it carries with it. Um, and we see this really evidenced in, in the verses following in 1 John. All right, so 1 John 1, 5, this is a message we've heard from him, proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness in God. He's perfectly free from evil. Then in the next verses, John's going to actually give the explainer. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's how it works. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood cleanses us from all sin. That's the goal. 
But notice, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, (laughs) and his word is not in us. The word doesn't abide in us. If we neglect to confess and admit our own sin before God. So, to say then that God is holy is to acknowledge he is perfectly free from all evil. To say, I'm, I'm not walking in the light. I need somebody that is in the light. Well, the only, um, only person that exists in the light is God. God exists perfectly in the light, and we say we need him to shed light on our sin and to bring us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. We need God to do that. So God is, uh, uh, or God's holiness is perfect freedom from all evil in every way. He's perfect from all evil. The holiness of God includes perfect conformity to his own character. So he's perfectly good at all times, perfectly free from all evil. This is the standard. God and his holiness is the standard. We're the little boy going to the bedroom saying, hey, I want to be like daddy, and I put on my dorky dad outfit and try to go like him even though I'm not like him. And we want to be like God, but he sets the standard because he is the standard. He's perfectly good. We want to be like him, even though we're not. So the holiness of God includes perfect conformity to his own character. Since in the illustration that I gave, I was the dad and I am the dorky dad. I mean, I am. I, <laughs> I love it. I love being that guy. I, like, I'm not trying to be something that I'm not. Like, I, I am always that to my boy, and I want to be that and want to be conformed to that, that character. Well, God is perfectly conformed to his own character. Since God is holy, all of his thoughts are consistent with his holy character. All the time, God is holy. All the time, God is perfect. All the time, he's never not that way. But we fail in this area. We fail in this area all the time. Where God is perfect all the time, we're failing all the time. We're in a sinful flesh. We just are. Our flesh is sinful. It is. And, um, you know, it's like my good buddy, Paul Norton. So second shout out. Shout out to Paul. Um, Like my good buddy, Paul Norton, says, he says, you know, sinners going to sin. And that's the truth. Sinners are going to sin. We are going to sin. And if you don't think you sin, (laughs) here is a small list of things from uh, the New Testament or that the New Testament lists as as sin. I won't go through all of them. I'll try to put them up on the screen somewhere so that you can see what this list of sins is, what they are. I'll just go through and highlight a few of them, maybe to help us see how sinful we are at times. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, makes this reference um, of several passages of Scripture, and here are a few things he highlights as being sinful from the Word of God. Um, From Mark 7, evil thoughts. You got us all right there. We all have evil thoughts sometimes, whatever those may be. Impurity. Homosexual relations. Notice he doesn't mention homosexual attraction there, which I feel like is a secondary conversation we could have later, but homosexual relations. Um, Drunkenness. Sexual immorality, um, those are from Romans 1 and Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 6. Sexual immorality, several times, sexual immorality. Uh, greed, greed. 
I've seen a lot of people that struggle with 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 greed. Uh, swindlers, usually greed and swindling kind of go hand in hand. If somebody is going to swindle you, try to do a kind of a shady business deal, they're probably greedy along the way, and I have seen that happen many times. Um, Galatians, fits of anger, divisions, envy, um, Colossians, slander. Yes, slander is a sin just as much as homosexual relations are a sin in the Bible. Slander. Obscene talk. I've seen some really obscene things coming out of the mouth of holiness people and people professing Christ. And you know what? I am ashamed to say here to you, the audience, that I've been one of those guys. I've had to go back and repent, ask God to forgive me uh, for speaking in certain ways and saying certain things that really I had no business talking about. And we, we should be mindful of that. We should be careful of that. Um, there, there, there's, there's never really any good reason for a professing Christian to go around just telling dirty jokes or saying perverse things all the time. Look, brother, sister, if that's you, I love you and I want the best for you, but, but really maybe you should pause and take that to the Lord and say, God, I want, I want to acknowledge this and repent of this and ask you to help me with this. I'm not, I'm not saying this to throw shade or hate at you, but come on, man, come on, bro, do better. You're you're better than that, man. You're a Christian. You got the life of Christ in you, the Holy Spirit working in your life. You're going to sit around talking that way? Come on. Uh, first, first Timothy, uh, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't need doctrine. I just need Jesus. Well, not according to the Bible. <laughs> you need doctrine. And how can you know your doctrine is sound if you're not focused on doctrine in the first place? Uh, Revelation. The faithless and all liars. It's just a few. It's just a few things. So we act outside of the character of God all the time. You and I are sinners, even as justified people. Our sin nature is ever-present and inescapable. It's there. We will sin. Sorry to break it to you. We'll find ourselves trapped in a series of impure thoughts, or we'll tell a lie. At the very least, we will break the first commandment to love the Lord with all our heart. And I mean, it happens. Question is, though, do we have to do these things? Is that a requirement to be a Christian? You have to sin? No, you don't have to sin. But the question really, I don't think is, uh, I don't really think the question is, do we have to sin? Because we know the answer to that question is no, and that's a cop-out. We don't have to sin. The question is, do we sin? And I think the answer to that is yes. So I heard somebody say not long ago, um, they were speaking of another person that had made a statement that they hadn't sinned in 50 years. <laughs> um, I think I mentioned this last show, but it's worth, it's, it's worth circling back to again. Uh, my thought was that this person is a prideful liar. You are a prideful liar if you don't think you've sinned in 50 years. We sin. God doesn't. And that's why we rely on him as Savior. I mean, that's why we need a Savior all the time. I'm not going to tell the story that Jerry Bridges tells in his book, but I'll just give the very end of it. He was talking about a particular issue he was struggling with in his life, and he felt very attacked and condemned and accused by Satan over um, this issue in his life. And he was really trying to be honest with God and to sort through it. And, and in prayer... He was reminded of the words to the old hymn, and I'll just share the words to the hymn with you. 
This should be our prayer when we think about sin and our failures, our failures and failings before God. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. Bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. I mean, that is the point of everything. Yes, we should strive to be uh, sinless. That should be the goal, but we know that we're not going to get there. That's why we have a Savior. Yes, we should strive to be holy, um, to live holy as God is holy, but we know we're going to mess it up. So the holiness of God includes perfect conformity to his own character. That's what can make him a Savior, because he's always in perfect conformity with his own character. His, perfect, his character is perfect holiness, and he's always in line with that. He's never out of step with that. We are and we need him in our lives as Savior. All right? So we worship God also by recognizing his holiness over and over and over and over again in Scripture. God's holiness is reflected back to worship. It's tied to worship over and again. Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So God is often called in Scripture by such names as Holy One, or the Holy One of Israel. And holy, according to uh, Stephen Sharnock, is, is used more often as a prefix to God's name than any other attribute. Holiness is God's crown. So imagine for a moment that God possessed omnipotence, infinite power, uh, omniscience, perfect and complete knowledge, and omnipresent. He was everywhere, present, all the time but without perfect holiness. Such one can no longer be described as God. Holiness is the perfection of all his other attributes. His power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. It is his holiness more than any other attribute that makes him worthy of our praise. God is a, he is a holy God. So one of the most angelic and heavenly things a person can do is recognize the holiness of God. You want to know what it's like or what heaven is like when you worship God as God and as being holy. Then you, 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 you're in contact with heaven in a way that, that most never attain, most never witness or feel or, or enter into when we recognize God as being the perfection of holiness. See, God, your, your wisdom is perfect and holy wisdom. Your love is perfect and holy love. Your grace is perfect and holy grace. Your, your judgment is perfect and holy judgment. God, everything that you do is perfect and it is holy. And that's what we're striving after is, is to be like God. That's why we're pursuing holiness because we're pursuing God. We worship God by recognizing his holiness. But here's the thing. We must do more than just recognize that holiness. It's cool. Everybody wants to recognize that and sing holy, 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 Lord God, almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We all want to sing that. We all want to recognize the holiness of God and worship him as such, but we must do more than just recognize 
His holiness. We must be holy. We can camp in the heavenly realms of worship all we want and just get up here in the third heaven and worship God and sing holy, holy, holy all day long. But at some point, at some point, we have to come back to reality. We have to come back to our homes, to our lives, to our jobs, to our marriages, to our families, to our children, to everything that is life around us. We've got to come out of this realm of the holy and thank God for those realms of the holy. But we've got to come back and we have to be holy. We, we, we want to be affected by the holiness of God until we mirror that in our lives. When we get to life, we must be holy. Since we know that God always acts consistently with his own holy character, that becomes the standard. That's it. That God is holy. So what's the holiness standard? Ha! <laughs> I made a video, a real hot button video that a lot of people were upset with. And I said, there are no holiness standards. The point is this, there are no standards. There are just varying degrees of opinion about frivolous things that vary from person to person or church to church or preacher to preacher or pastor to pastor. There are no holiness standards. And none of these issues are gospel issues. None. A lot of people didn't like that, and I stand by the statement still, but, but if there were to be a holiness standard, do you know what the holiness standard would be? God. <laughs> God is the, the perfect standard of holiness. That's why holiness standards, dress standards, are a, just a cheap knockoff of God's holiness. So it's got a perfect holiness of God, and then these, these vain attempts at righteousness that are just like Dollar Tree holiness. <laughs> but God does require holiness in the believer. So don't take that too far to say, well, Van Zant's out there again, and he's dogging on everyone, saying that holiness isn't important. No, it's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying holiness is important. Holiness is a requirement in the life of the believer. And God cannot relax his own standard of holiness, not even for one moment. Back to our beginning passage in Scripture. But as he who called you is holy. And look, if we were to go dive into 1 Peter and, and really camp out in that first chapter for a while, you would see a lot of things about uh, God and how he's dealing with, or Peter and how he's dealing with these Jews that have been dispersed around and abroad and why he's calling them to be holy in a place that, that is foreign to them. Um, so, so, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you should be holy for I am holy in all we do. We are to honor Christ. I'm excited to get to the chapter where we're going to deal with the holiness of Christ. This is the holiness of God. Wait till we get to the holiness of Christ. It's going to be great. <laughs> in all we do, we are to honor Christ. And this extends much, much further than just prohibitions in our life. Holiness isn't just expressed in the things that we don't do. Don't have a TV. Don't wear pants if you're a woman. Don't cut your hair if you're a woman. Uh, don't go to football games. Don't, 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 don't. Don't do these things. It's not just expressed in the things that we don't do. Of course, it is expressed in the things that we don't do. You know, we have prohibitions on our life. I'm not anti-prohibition -pro of, of sin. We should strive to have uh, certain things that we don't do, uh, but holiness is expressed in the things we do. Uh, Romans 14, 1 through 4, really just, Romans 14 is great. 
if you're wondering about personal convictions and how I should sort through these things that I don't have scripture for in matters of conscience, what should I do? Go, go read and study Romans 14. Romans 14, 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. All right, you're welcome, bro, but we're not going to fight about, about your opinions. One, believes, one person believes he made anything, uh, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Vegetarianism right there in the Bible. <laughs> so let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God's welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So if you meet a person who, who holds a conviction that you don't hold, don't hate on that. But if you hold a conviction that somebody else doesn't hold, don't hate on that. You know what? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just throw this out there. This is for free. Nothing was even planned about this. I was having a chat with my nephew the other day, um, and he was over at my house. He's a good kid, and he's really trying to serve the Lord, seeking God, and pursuing you know, a real relationship with the Lord. We were talking about a certain TV show, um, Stranger Things. I love me some Stranger Things. But he told me, he said, well, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't watch that show. I'm like, yeah, if you feel conviction over it, by all means, bud, don't watch, don't watch Stranger Things. And he said, and I said, well, I told him, but look, if I choose to watch Stranger Things, that doesn't mean that you get to look at me like I'm bad. Like it's your conviction. It's not mine. I'm not going to push my, my liberty over onto you. You shouldn't push your conviction over onto me. You know, and he's like, oh, well, yeah, thanks. That makes a lot of sense. I think that there's we have a struggle with that because we feel convicted about something. We want everybody to feel convicted over that thing, and that is just not how conviction works. Because we got to realize who we are serving. We're not serving one another in matters of conviction. We're really not. We're serving God. The rest of this passage says as much. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Servant of God. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In matters of conviction, it is not my job or yours to push your preference outside of Scripture onto another person. That's what Romans 14 is telling us. So we must be careful here, or we'll run into error using liberty as an excuse to sin. And Galatians warns us, about using liberty as an occasion to sin. So we don't want to just say, well, I have liberty in, in, in everything and no conscience about anything, so I just go and do everything. No. We should have certain things in our life that we look at and say, no, this is sanctified unto the Lord because I'm God's servant. God will not excuse our sin. If we truly grasp the significance of God's perfect holiness, both in himself and in his demands for us, we will readily see we can never uh, justify before him even the slightest deviation from his perfect will. And God does not accept the excuse, well, that's just the way that I am, or even the more hopeful statement, well, I'm still growing in that area of my life. God doesn't accept those things. Now, he gives grace. He does give grace for us, right? Uh, but we shouldn't settle into it and use it as an excuse. So much, much more could be said on this issue and on the issue of uh, convictions and personal holiness and of how God deals with our sin, but we must acknowledge our necessity of holiness. 
We have to acknowledge that. We need holiness in our lives. Um, well might Christians, though justified solely by the righteousness of Christ, ponder carefully uh, the words of the writer to the Hebrews, make every effort, make every effort, all right? Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We should make every effort to be holy. All right, so because God is holy, I think we've established that. I hope that we have. Because God is holy, he hates sin. And hate is a strong word. It really is. But it is appropriate when we speak of sin. God hates sin. To be like God is to hate sin. Preach a little holiness. We often say, God hates the sin, but but uh, loves the sinner. And that's blessedly true. It's the fact of the matter. Uh, but too often we do this. We, we skip over the first half of that statement. To get to the second, we just want to ride right past this thing. Well, God hates the sin, but God loves the sinner. We want to camp out in that part. But we need to remember the first half is why the second half even exists. God hates sin. We cannot escape, escape the fact that God hates our sin. <sighs> So we may trifle with our sin or excuse them, but God hates them. And every time you or I sin, we're doing something that God hates. He hates sin and sinners. He hates sin and saints. He hates it. R.C. Sproul has this to say. Uh, the saints of Scripture were called saints, not because they were already pure, but because they were people who were set apart, called to purity. So people were called saints not because they were pure, but because they were set apart and called to a place of purity. God hates sin, and we should too. Look, we should hate sin in the world around us. We should hate sin in the media. Our agenda should be opposed to the sexualized and over-sensualized ads that we see on social media or on television or in any other way that we see these things. We should hate that. Um... We should hate sin when we see it influenced in the lives of our children or in the corruption of politicians. Look, and I, I didn't, I'll just put this caveat out there. Um, doesn't matter the party line. Doesn't matter where the politician came from. If they're a corrupt individual, we should hate that sin in them. We shouldn't cover over them because they say the things that we like or they're, they're on our side or they're red state or they're blue state. Uh, we shouldn't say, hey, this politician is great and they're a man of God because we like the politician. We should still acknowledge and hate the fact that they are sinful people. They may, they may be a good politician. You may like what they say politically, but you don't, don't make room or cover for the sin of a politician, all right? I think we know what we're talking about there, right? <laughs> and oftentimes, I find myself angry at these things. And I believe God's angry at them too. I see this happening around me, and man, I'm just furious. I think God's serious about it. But just as much as God hates the things that you or I see in the world around us, God hates the things he sees inside of us. And when I look at the world and I'm upset at the sin I see in the world, I'm oftentimes, I take it easy on this guy. I take it easy on me. But you know what? God is just as strict in his punishment of sin in the world and it's just as strict as that is inside of me. He looks at my sin, and he hates my sin, and he hates your sin. He hates it. So what do we do? Since God is so holy and hates sin so much, do we just give up the fight and admit defeat 
Because we're like, look, I'm sinful. And I hate it. And I hate that I'm so sinful. But there's nothing I can do. No, no, we we don't just throw in the towel. Don't don't give up the fight against sin in your life. If you look, if you've come out of a, of a very strict fundamentalist perspective of life, and you're saying, "What do I do?" Because I see these things that I was brought up to hate. Now I'm changing my perspective. Well, don't stop hating sin. Like like I, I'm struggling with it in me. Don't stop hating it in you. Hate it. Um, Bridges has this to say: a frequent contemplation on the holiness of God and its consequent hatred of sin is a strong deterrent against strifling with sin. So what do we do? We fill ourselves with the good things of God. While we're fighting sin, we're still filling ourselves with the goodness of God. We listen to Christian programming or podcasts. You focus on those things. Focus on the Word of God. Focus on on worship. We have gospel conversations with friends and coworkers. I'm not saying you got to go around talking about God all the time. Would be great, but but let's be realistic. Um, but 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 we surround ourselves with the things of God. All right. So what's the conclusion here? What's the conclusion? The holiness of God. God is the standard of holiness. The holiness of God is an exceedingly high standard. And it's a perfect standard, but is nevertheless, nevertheless one that he holds us to. He cannot do less. While it is true that he accepts us solely through the merit of Christ, God's standard for our character, our attitudes, affections, and actions is be holy because I am holy. And we must take this seriously if we are ever to grow in holiness. That's my desire. That's my prayer for myself and for you guys. Let's strive toward this holiness, not legalism or unbridled liberty. Let's seek to be holy like God is holy. All right? Guys, that's it for now. Grace, peace. I'll catch you next time.